Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. One day after calling mega Republicans a threat to the country, President Biden today says something different about Trump supporters. NTD's Iris Tao has more on the fallout from his primetime speech. Asked if he considers all Trump supporters a threat to the nation, President Biden said this on Friday. I don't consider any Trump supporter to be a threat to the country. I do think anyone who calls for the use of violence refuses to acknowledge when an election has been won. That is a threat to democracy. That comes less than a day after Biden attacked what he calls MAGA Republicans in a primetime speech on Thursday. The Republican Party today is dominated, driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. Those remarks getting polarized reactions. While Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi calls in an inspiring speech that makes clear our democracy is on the line, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy says... The first lines out of his mouth should be to apologize for slandering tens of millions of Americans as fascists. Others criticize Biden for placing Marines behind him. If you don't want the so-called MAGA Republicans or any Republicans to be politicizing the military, then you shouldn't do it yourself. The White House, however, said Friday that having Marines during the speech was intended to demonstrate the deep and abiding respect uh, the president has for these service, service members. And Biden's Thursday speech will be followed by a Saturday rally in the same state by the mega Republican at the center of his speech, former President Donald Trump. Trump is rallying there with gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano and Senate candidate Mehmet Oz, or was dubbed the entire Pennsylvania Trump ticket. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The president gave a speech last night at a time when the country is as divided as ever. To assess the speech, we're happy to have Texas Congressman Louis Gohmert. Congressman Louis Gohmert, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Congressman, President Biden's speech last night, uh, White House spokesperson Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked about the presence of the military behind the president uh, with this uh, rather ominous backdrop. Uh, they say optics are everything. How did it come across to you? Well, it, it was uh, a backdrop that any leader would be proud of if that leader were of the former Soviet Union. Uh, you had the red backdrop. It looked wonderful, like uh, the Kremlin stars, the red stars. And uh, yeah, it, it looked like something any Soviet leader would have been proud to display and have as part of their history. But as a historian, somebody has never quit studying history since I majored in it in college. Uh, to me, it's frightening for what the boating is. Um, it's something. It, it's the kind of thing. And I know we hate uh, inappropriate comparisons to Hitler, but for those who know history, they know he was demagoguing his opponents. He was setting them up to get criticism. And then, as uh, historically, people give credit to 
uh, Hitler for setting the Reichstag building on fire. He had been condemning his opponents. And so then it was easy to blame them for setting that fire, which allowed him to accumulate power and go after his enemies and uh, shut them down. So we cannot allow them, no matter what Biden does, what he says, what the DOJ says, no matter how Gestapo-esque their tactics become, we can't let them provoke us into any violence, no matter what. We cannot do that. It's an excellent uh, point, Congressman. Nobody ever wants to see any violence uh, under any circumstances. Um, Do you think this speech will ultimately help or hurt the Democrats in the upcoming uh, elections? Well, I don't think it was to help or hurt uh, them other than to set up conservatives so that they can be the scapegoat for anything that happens. And by the way, Steve, if I could refer back to the right on on. Mar-a-Lago, uh, you know, people, the, the, the DOJ is saying, oh, he was he was trying to take documents he had no right to. Well, this is the first time I'm aware of in history where the intel community and the DOJ did not recognize the president's declassification of documents. And I would submit that he was not trying to hide documents by taking them and having them at Mar-a-Lago. He knows if there's anything that was against Trump, even in the least bit, it already got leaked. There were people in the National Security Council, over 400 members, so many of them hated Trump. They already leaked it if it was the least bit uh, condemning or would help make controversy out of Trump. Those are already out there. The things that he wanted to preserve were the things that would just show exactly what happened in those times that Trump was being accused of uh, impropriety. He saw a need to preserve documents that would show his innocence of things he was charged with. So uh, I think those documents were in much safer hands with Trump than they are uh, in DOJ or Intel hands, or even now that we know people, even people at the National Archives will lie to try to set up Trump. Congressman, if I could ask you a technical question, along with uh, studying history in college, you also went on to study law. Uh, Before uh, coming to Congress, you were a judge. Um, The special master request in the uh, the Trump raid, uh, the the judges delayed that decision. Uh, How should this be perceived? Is this a normal flow of events? Well, it's not unusual to have decisions delayed by courts. But what was unusual was to have the FBI grab this material, a lot of which was privileged, and they knew there was privileged material there. And they knew the outcome of the appeals in the William Jefferson case. Obviously, William Jefferson was guilty. There was plenty of evidence from which to convict him. But Mueller, as FBI director, conducted a raid on his congressional office and seized all kinds of stuff. And they said, and we've set up a Chinese firewall. We're going to have members of the Justice Department go through those documents and anything that's privileged. We'll have them set aside. And then the prosecutors won't see that. And the appellate court said, no, you can't do that. 
You can't have that firewall within your own set of prosecutors. So they knew what they were doing was wrong. That, of course, was legislative versus executive. But in this case, you have attorney-client privilege documents, and they didn't care. And they knew they'd better get through them before the court had a chance to rule so they could see everything that that were in those sets of documents. Uh, so that's not unusual that a court would delay. It was unusual that the FBI could work so quickly to get through the documents so they could see all the privileged material that they wanted to. Congressman Louis Gomert, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Thank you. Mark Meckler, president of Convention of States, also joins us now to assess President Biden's speech. Mark Meckler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mark, reactions still coming in uh, from the president's primetime uh, speech last night. Uh, what are your thoughts? I'm truly an extraordinary moment in American history. First of all, the, the set piece and the way it was set up was outrageously bad. I mean, if you could not have a more fascistic setup with the red and black background, it, it looked like something straight out of the, the Fourth Reich or something. And so I think that was a mistake. I don't think that was intentional. But I think somebody, whoever set that thing up, should be in a lot of trouble for doing that. Second, it was very dark. Its overtones were, I would argue, fascist as well. They were demonizing half of the American population, saying half of the American population are essentially a threat to democracy. I think this marks a dangerous turning point in modern American history. Mark, the term extreme mega uh, Republicans seems to be strategically crafted, possibly through uh, focus groups. It casts a very uh, dark shadow over a large segment of the population, over 75 million that voted for the former president. Uh, what do you think they're, they're referring to as extreme that mega Republicans are in favor of? Yeah, I don't think it, they're referring to anything in particular, although clearly abortion and gay marriage came up. Those don't seem to me to be Trump issues or MAGA issues, really. I think what they're actually referring to is pure politics. This was supposed to be a speech about the soul of America and reaching out and trying to unite the soul of America. That's what it was billed as. Because in the Daily Beast, they said you can't give a speech about the soul of America and then turn it into a campaign speech where you attack half of America. If you've lost the Daily Beast, then I think you've lost America. Mark, to your point, uh, we, we hear a lot about uh, the talk of democracy being at stake, yet we're seeing a, a shift, as you just mentioned, in political rhetoric that's unprecedented, really, uh, with elected officials directly targeting voters, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, the president last night. This is uncharted territory. It is uncharted territory. I can tell you in my adult lifetime, I don't recall ever Republican candidates demonizing half of the population like this, telling voters of the other party to leave their state or that they don't want their vote. There's always been outreach across the aisle to other voters to say, hey, you should come join me and my view for uniting America. So this is a time now where these politicians, Kathy Hochul, Joe Biden and others are saying half of America is out of bounds. We're not interested in your vote and we think you should be purged from the political system. Mark Meckler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The CDC, without much fanfare, has reversed course on major guidance regarding COVID-19. Among other things, they're no longer differentiating on vaccine status because of the occurrence of breakthrough infections. Discussion about COVID-19 vaccines on social media has gotten many banned or censored, and big tech is back in the spotlight for censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story, which turned out to be real. 
To discuss, we have founder of Social Media Freedom Foundation, Jason Fick. Jason Fick, thank you so much for joining us on the Capitol Report. Thank you, Steve. Jason, big big tech uh, censorship is back in the spotlight uh, most recently because Mark Zuckerberg has uh, admitted to suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, how widespread uh, is this censorship? Well, as you know, Steve, we've been working on the Section 230 problem for a long period of time. Uh, a lot of people are looking at this from essentially outside state action where they're being acted, you know, they're acting upon directives from the state. And that's what uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, has basically admitted to is, is that they did act at the behest of the state. Um, what we've been working on is actually the internal, you know, act, uh, what would be Title 47 U.S. Code Section 230. Um, the directive to act at, at the behest of state is actually in the, the statute itself. So realistically, these, these companies have been acting, you know, as state agents for a long period of time. Uh, it's just a matter of the, you know, the general populace is starting to finally catch up. As you mentioned, I mean, there's a complex behind the scenes legal battle going on right now when it comes to Section uh, 230 that you've been at the forefront of uh, when it comes to big techs receiving uh, the benefits of being a platform while acting as a, a, a publisher. Uh, break this down for us a bit. Um, so we sued, I sued Facebook back in 2018. Uh, we took the case all the way to Supreme Court and they dismissed it wrongly. Um, they said that I was treating them as a publisher, but there's semantics that, you know, they say every word of the law matters. Well, I, I was treating them as a publisher. I was not treating them as the publisher. Uh, in my circumstance, that makes a major difference based on one preposition. So we, we sued, we went through, didn't get anywhere with it, but then another case, Enigma versus Malwarebytes, proved we were correct in the first place. So we're back in the course right now uh, and, and hoping uh, we, we have an oral argument state set for October 17th uh, in the Ninth Circuit Court right now. And we're looking at the Good Samaritan general provision. But because the United States never gave me a day in court, never won, and this law is an administrative law that delegates regulatory authority, which is very similar to the West Virginia versus EPA case, Section 230 actually um, prevents due process. So as you know, uh, I stood at the Capitol steps with Congressman Gomer and announced back in April that we had filed a constitutional challenge of Section 230. This is for all the marbles. This, this will determine whether or not Section 230 is or is not constitutional. Um, we have a set date for September 13th for the Attorney General's office to reply. So we're going to see what the executive branch's you know, position on this law is. Um, but as you also know is, we went up there and, and announced probably one of the most monumental cases in modern history, and the mainstream media ignored it. It, it, it you know, relatively hasn't been even uh, mentioned by any of the media. Jason, you've also been requisitioned to, to write a replacement to the current terms of 230. What does the proper rendering of this code look like to you? So we had to look at it from the standpoint of what's wrong, and, and unfortunately, most people don't even know how the law itself works. I mean, for example, Good Samaritan General Provision, most people don't, have no idea what that application is. And it, it's something called an intelligible principle. So you have to first know what's wrong. When you know what's wrong, then you know how to fix it. And, and the basic general consensus, or I would say that the generalization as to what I did with the, the law on the, what we're calling the Online Freedom Act, um, is to restore everybody's freedoms. And you have to look at it as being it's broad and it's exploitable. And essentially, because of its exploitation being so vague, the courts have been largely unable to control it. So it's gone you know, completely haywire and they can do whatever they want. Well, it's not a matter of scrapping. 
It's a matter of narrowing down and adding qualifications, strict mandates, and procedural safeguards, very much like a normal commission would have. And we've, we've gone ahead and done that with the Online Freedom Act. It's a very convoluted topic. We appreciate you uh, providing some clarity on it. Jason Fick, thank you. Thanks, Steve. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.